This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week in our 232nd episode, we have a bunch of dinosaur news, including two new dinosaurs, some new dinosaur exhibits, and a new dinosaur movie, as well as a bunch of other stuff. We also have Dinosaur of the Day Indosuchus and our fun fact. But before we get into all of that, we would like to thank some of our patrons by name. And this week, we'd like to thank Lucas and Eli, Wyatt, the Georges family, John Heck, Quinn Pomeroy, Ranger Chris from Dino for Hire, Ray, Oliver E., Andrew and Helena Webb, Callum, Ricky, William, Red Sox Rex, Jay, Wouter, Chirac, and Moss Utah Raptor. Yeah, thank you so much. We appreciate all of your support, and we're having a great time chatting with people on our Patreon page and on Discord, so if you want to join, then... Yeah, head over to our page at patreon.com slash inodino. Jumping into the news, our first new dinosaur for the week is from Antarctica, and it was written up in Cretaceous Research by Ricardo Eli and Judd Case. Like I said, it was found in Antarctica. Specifically, it was in the Snow Hill Island Formation on James Ross Island. It's not the first dinosaur from that formation. It's kind of interesting because the formation is actually on like two or three different islands. There's like, a, you know, basically water over the formation, I guess, or maybe it's eroded through it. But there have been dinosaurs, at least like three or four other dinosaurs from that spot. And like all the other dinosaurs from that area, it's from the late Cretaceous. It's really at the end of the Antarctic Peninsula. So it's not like when you think about Antarctica and like the ice cap. This is actually on an island that's kind of up pretty close to the southern tip of Argentina, relatively speaking, for Antarctica. They named the dinosaur... Ampyrobator antarcticus, and Ampyrobator is from Ampyro, which is Latin for commanding or powerful, and Bator, which is Mongolian for warrior. Pretty cool. It's a pretty good name. It is, yeah. And then Antarcticus is for Antarctica. So what you get when you find something in Antarctica. A lot of times Antarctica makes its way into the name because it's a pretty unique place to find a dinosaur. Yeah. So unfortunately, they only found part of a foot and the very bottom of the leg. So it's like they have a picture of the bones and three quarters of the picture is a foot. And then that little one quarter above the foot is enough to show all of the leg that they found. It's just like a very small bit, almost like the size of a metacarpal or something. It's like pretty unfortunately small. 
And even with that, they didn't even find the whole foot. They basically only found a few partial toes and then some of the foot bones that are all partial. I don't even know if there's a full, complete, single toe bone in the mix. It's very fragmentary. So from all these bones, they determined that it was a quote-unquote non-dromaeosaurid paravian. They obviously didn't find a sickle claw because then you'd think, oh, it's a dromaeosaur. But the real reason that they determined that it was a paravian is based on how the bones connected. So kind of like the shapes of the bones on the ends to see like basically how flexible or inflexible they might be at different joints and things like that. That's how they could tell that it was a paravian which is a pretty broad category, <laughs> but it's like, yeah, it's a late Cretaceous. It's basically what paravians are. They're like bird-ish dinosaurs, and they can't really place it much more specifically than that, unfortunately. I think, though, that this is one of the most important formations because there's a decent chance that dinosaurs from this area were the ones that evolved into modern birds after all the other dinosaurs were wiped out on Earth because Antarctica was relatively far from the impact site. So, there's a chance that it was like this group that was the ancestor to all modern birds. All modern birds, not just penguins? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because penguins must have secondarily become flightless after these dinosaurs would have spread out around the earth. If that's true, it's pretty speculative at this point, but I kind of like that theory. But unfortunately, we don't have a lot of great remains from this area because bones in Antarctica, once they're exposed so that a paleontologist can actually find them, they get really rapidly eroded because one of the biggest ways to destroy something is with the freeze-thaw cycles. And obviously in this part of Antarctica, that happens pretty aggressively. So Yeah, there's probably longer periods of times between when paleontologists can visit Antarctica too compared yeah. to other sites. Yeah, very true. So they can't just check it every season and see like, oh, is there a new dinosaur bone here? And then dig out the rest of it before it starts to erode away. They might have to wait a couple of years, and in that time, the erosion could get going pretty far. And I think even in a single season, you might get more erosion in Antarctica than you do somewhere like Montana. So we have one more piece to the Antarctica dinosaur puzzle. It's not a great piece, <laughs> but it's better than nothing. But it's nice to know that there are multiple types of dinosaurs yeah. on that continent. True, because we've found ankylosaurs, and we've also found... Theropods. Yeah, well, this would be a theropod. Oh, but right, like but other types of theropods. More traditional, larger-bodied <laughs> theropods, yeah. The other new dinosaur that I want to talk about was shared with us by James via Patreon, so thank you. And this one was published in Scientific Reports and written by Rui Cho and others. And this one's from much farther north. It was found in the Liaoning province in China, specifically the Yixian Formation, and it's from the late Cretaceous, like everything <laughs> seems to be in China. And much like all of those, it's one of those smashed bird-looking dinosaurs that we see all the time. This one's named Xingtianosaurus Gangqi. And Xingtianosaurus is after, quote, Xingtian, a Chinese deity recorded in Shanghai Jing, who continued to fight even after his head had been cut off. Oh, yeah. In reference to the skullless holotype, end quote. It's quite a legend. I think it's an amazing name for a dinosaur. Yeah. So, yeah, I read a little bit about this character and it's from a story that is like pre-modern. It was like the fourth century BCE is when the story comes from. And Xing Tian 
can translate to something like against heavens or something. So he's like, you know, a demon kind of thing in, in Christianity. And he's like fighting and then, you know, some angel-like thing cut off his head. Hmm. And so, yeah, but then he kept fighting and it said he used his nipples as eyes and his belly button as a mouth. Wow. <laughs> so there's this drawing of him that's like 400 years old where he has a, a face on his chest. It's like what happened after his head got cut off. It's a pretty interesting little story. Sounds intense. Yeah. And then the species name Gangchi is the name of the battle axe that Xing Tian used. So... You've got the name of the warrior as the first name and then his weapon as the last name. Pretty great name. I'm a big fan. They didn't make a lifelike restoration or really describe how big they thought it was when it was alive, but based on the relatively articulated leg that was fossilized, it was probably a little over a foot tall. I'm saying maybe 40 centimeters roughly. It's a very rough estimate because this is basically just based on the leg and some random... <laughs> approximations, but it kind of gives you the, the size range of it. So it's much bigger than all the enantiornithines and things that we talk about from China. This is more of like a typical sort of oviraptorosaur body plant. So it's like more theropod dinosaur than theropod bird sort of stature. So it's probably a lot longer than a foot, you know, like two, three feet. I don't know. You really can't tell how long it is because even though the legs are pretty well articulated, it's kind of smashed head on, sort of like the Berlin Archaeopteryx, where it has its arms out to its side, and then the tail's kind of behind it, but smashed up in one spot, mm -hmm. and then its feet are down below it. So you, you can't get much of the depth kind of measurement from it. You can see how tall it is and kind of how wide it is because its arms are to the side, but you really can't tell how long it would be. So from the name, Shingtianosaurus, you can tell that it doesn't have a head, since that's basically the genesis of the name. But it's also missing its neck and some of its claws. And at first I thought maybe that was poached, but they describe them as taphonomically missing, which means that they were lost either before or during fossilization. So I guess just the claws somehow didn't make it through the fossilization process. And then it's pretty clear that like the head part of the block is just missing. So I don't know why that didn't get fossilized. There's a lot of reasons. It could be just that the head wasn't in the same kind of dirt that the rest of the body was in and that part just didn't fossilize. This kind of thing happens all the time. I really wish papers gave more history about their finds in general though, because based on the way when they have the picture of the find, it looks like it was a whole bunch of little pieces that kind of got put back together. So I was wondering if maybe they were doing like a construction project or something and then broke it into a bunch of pieces and then realized like, oh, that's a dinosaur. <laughs> we should put these pieces back together and try to figure out what it was. But they didn't really talk about it in the paper because they usually don't. Sometimes you get like a little snippet, especially if the dinosaur is named after someone, they'll say like, oh, they did a great job finding this dinosaur in this year or something, but not this time. So we really don't know much. In the description, they always have to give a explanation for why this dinosaur is unique and therefore why it deserves its own name. And in this case, they say it has proportionally longer arms than you might expect. And it also has a low radial angle. And the radial angle is basically the connection between the arm and the wrist, specifically like the angle of one of the bones. So it possibly means that it used its hands differently than some of its relatives like cauteryx. So yeah, might have slightly different hand functionality. Kind of hard to say. <laughs>
this is just a description paper, so maybe there'll be follow-up papers where they kind of try to dig into that sort of detail. So now we have another dinosaur named after Chinese legends. We talked about another one pretty recently, but Xingtianosaurus, pretty good name. We also have two papers that are about how dinosaurs flew, or possibly how they developed flight. The first one was published in PLOS Computational Biology and written by Yasser Talori and others. They were looking at cauteryx, and they knew it couldn't fly, but they wanted to see how it might have used its wings. And as a quick reminder, cauteryx is from about 125 million years ago, so it's from the early Cretaceous, earlier than Xingtianosaurus, but significantly after Archaeopteryx, about 25 million years later than Archaeopteryx. So it's not the first evolution of flight. You'd probably recognize Cauteryx if you saw it based on its wings, and it has one of those big, large tail fans at the end of its tail. And it's about the size of like a wild turkey, I would say, with smaller wings. So it's a relatively big dinosaur for one with wings. It's not one of those, again, not one of those little tiny enantiornithines that we see everywhere, like Microraptor or something. It's a little bit bigger. And the, I think the reason they picked Cauteryx is because it has those wings and it's kind of medium size and it's clear that the wings aren't big enough for flight. And we think that things may have evolved flight from sort of a similar looking ancestor. So it might be useful for seeing what it was using its wings for sort of figuring out like how wings evolve generally in dinosaurs that evolve flight. So in the past, people have hypothesized that Cauteryx was a flightless bird, and that kind of implies that its ancestors could fly, so that maybe Cauteryx evolved from something like an Archaeopteryx or something into a flightless bird. <laughs> so it was like losing its wings, basically. But these authors are looking at it in the opposite way. They're looking at it in the well, what if Cauteryx was at the beginning of the flight evolution into birds, basically? At least one of the times it evolved. Yeah. So what these researchers decided to focus on is something called forced vibrations. And basically, forced vibrations can be caused by a lot of things. But specifically in this case, they're talking about when Cauteryx is running, it's sort of vibrating its body. <laughs> if you think about it that way. If you've ever gone for a run wearing like a backpack or, you know, like a necklace or something, you know that like your body is kind of bouncing around and things like that. And at a certain frequency, when you're running, things can resonate potentially. I don't think we have any good analogs as humans. Maybe like your arms could maybe somehow like kind of flop around when you're running. Well, you move them anyway. Yeah, we do it kind of intentionally though. This is, they were looking at kind of a passive thing. Like if his wings are just sitting on its back as it runs, would they kind of move around naturally? Mm. It's a, a kind of a weird analogy. It's like if you just let your arms go limp at your side. I think they'd move. They would. And then there's probably some speed that you, if you ran at that speed, they'd flop around the most. <laughs> <laughs> Guess it'd be the, the analogy. So like if, at a certain pace, like the arm would like swing back and then you'd take the next step at just the right time and it would like kind of reinforce a swing going forward in sort of a resonating kind of way. It's weird because we just kind of hold our arms. In any event, they were looking at these force vibrations and the way they did it at first was modeling a cauteryx as a series of weights on different limbs with springs to simulate the muscles. 
So this is just basically a digital model. So if you imagine you have the dinosaur simulated as like a big brick of mass in the middle, and then you have six springs attached to different parts of the brick. So you've got two on the bottom, one for each leg, and then you have two kind of sticking out the sides, one for each wing, and then one sticking out the front for the head, one sticking out the back for the tail, and then you have a weight on each of those. So then like if you kind of picked up the brick in the middle and then like simulated it running by bouncing it up and down, you could get to a certain frequency where the wings would kind of start flapping if you're just shaking it the right way. Hmm. Sort of what they were modeling digitally. And they came up with a couple speeds that might cause the wings to flap just from it running. Obviously, this is a really simple model, and it reminds me of the old adage that all models are wrong, but some are useful. (laughs) (laughs) So yes, we know this is not how dinosaurs actually moved exactly, but it might give us some information. So in Cauteryx, what they found was that the resonance would start around two and a half meters per second, or about 5.6 miles an hour, and there was another big resonance around 5.8 meters per second, or 13 miles an hour, and those are both under what they think the maximum speed of cauteryx would be, which is something like eight meters per second. So it's well within the range of possibility, and they have some videos in the open access paper, so anybody can watch them, and basically, after doing their digital model, they made an actual robot of a cauteryx. <laughs> so this one made a, a decent amount of news because there's a dinosaur robot. Yep. And they put it on like a treadmill kind of thing and then recorded it in slow motion. And at those speeds, you can see the wings on its sides start to kind of flop around. It's a pretty cute looking robot too. It is, yeah. It's, it looks like it was probably 3D printed. It's all like white plastic and it's a little guy. So of course, yeah, makes it cute. <laughs> <laughs> They also took a video of a baby ostrich running, and you can see its wings kind of doing the same thing on its back, kind of bobbing around. So sort of a proof of concept that this might actually happen in a real animal. Because the obvious question to me at first was, well, what if it just held its wings in a certain position? Like when we run, we don't just let our arms go limp. We you know, tend to use them to kind of reinforce the running. So birds could do that potentially, but at least baby ostriches seem to just kind of let them go all limp and flopping around. (laughs) (laughs) Then they did something even weirder. They took basically part of the cauteryx robot and strapped it to the back of a juvenile ostrich, so a significantly bigger ostrich, and then recorded it running to see if the cauteryx (laughs) wings, when strapped to an ostrich, would flap around naturally without any sort of motion imparted to them other than just the foot motion of the ostrich. Interesting. Yeah, that one to me was the hardest to see. Like the the baby ostrich running, I could pretty clearly see the wings bouncing around. I could see it on the robot on the treadmill, but when they strapped it to the <laughs> the larger ostrich and the ostrich was running around, it was pretty hard to see the wings like really resonating. Right. It looked like they would just kind of flop once or twice and then like its speed would change a little bit and it would kind of stop. So it was a lot harder to see. wonder if the ostrich was trying to get the robot off its back. Yeah, I don't know. In one of them, it looked like it was running over to a cage with other ostriches in it. Mm. So I don't know how they were inspiring this ostrich to run. But yeah, it was sort of working, I guess. They did manage to get some lift measurements from the ostrich, the larger ostrich, wearing this whole gizmo. But it really wasn't a whole lot of lift. So they got 
less than half a newton or less than a tenth of a pound of lift. And considering cauteterics weighed about a hundred times that, it's definitely not flying. We know that much, but they kind of already knew that going into it. But even it doesn't seem like that would be a major benefit. And if it's creating lift, it's also creating some drag. So I wonder like how much of a benefit it really is to having these wings kind of limp on its back. I'm not really sure, but maybe there's some evolutionary edge, you know, maybe it would help kind of with wing assisted incline running or something to that effect. And it was just that 0.1% better than its peers that allowed it to evolve and, you know, escape that extra percentage of predators. Sometimes that makes a big difference. Yeah. You know, that's kind of how natural selection works sometimes. So that could be the case here. The authors say that this could mean that birds evolved flight through this, quote, entirely natural phenomenon, end quote, which sounds like they're saying that because the bird or dinosaur doesn't have to think about it at all, you know, they could have these wings for a display structure. And then when they're running around, this kind of just naturally starts flapping. That might mean that it's a more logical progression of evolution, like a thing that kind of accidentally happens. But we still have a lot of other good hypotheses like the wing assisted incline running or potentially jumping between branches or all sorts of there's been so many proposed reasons for why flight might have evolved and ways in which, you know, not full flight wings might have helped, like even for a little bit of gliding or something that this is just another potential hypothesis. I don't think it really just because we have a, a robot that shows that it generates some lift and it would happen when the dinosaur was running, I don't think that really seals the case in favor of this hypothesis. Kind of seems like we won't know until we find a lot more fossils that show the series of flight evolving in a family so that you can actually see like whether it was dinosaurs like this that came first or it was ones that were trying to glide or hop between trees or what happened. It's still quite a mystery. And in the same vein, we also have a paper from Scientific Reports, and it was written by Daniela Schwartz and others. And they were looking at whether Archaeopteryx could fly by flapping or if it could only glide. The way they decided to look into this was by re-examining the Berlin Archaeopteryx skeleton under UV, and they found really that it was a lot lighter than what previous estimations had discovered. That makes it easier to fly. Exactly. So specifically, this dinosaur appears to be highly pneumatic, and the way they put it is it has a pneumaticity index of 0.39, so I had to look up what that was. Basically, a typical modern bird is around 1.0, but they vary quite a bit. So pneumaticity index does not mean 0.39 or 39% of the bones are hollow. It just means that it's like 0.39% of the bones that you would normally see pneumaticity in have pneumaticity. So it's about the same as some modern ducks. Hmm. I found another, the paper that made up the word pneumaticity index, looked at it in a whole bunch of birds and the aquatic ones tend to be on the lower end. And then there are the ones that are sort of the ones that ride thermals and have to be really lightweight because they barely flap at all. They yeah. just kind of float around. Those can be almost up to two. Wow. So, so like an albatross or something? I'm not sure if an albatross counts. Not that deep into birding yet. <laughs> <laughs> You're getting there. Yeah, I'm going to be. I know it's coming. But in this case, so 0.39, if that's the same as like a modern duck, they can obviously fly pretty actively. 
you know, for long distance, everybody's seen Fly Away Home or whatever that movie was with the woman guiding the ducks. You've never seen that movie? No. Oh, it's pretty good. Or at least it seemed good in like the 90s when it came out. We should watch it sometime. It's an inspiring story. I think it might be like Free Willy though, where it was like- It was good in the 90s? Yeah. (laughs) So anyway, back to Archaeopteryx. It has high pneumaticity, which means that it was lighter, but it also means that it probably had air sacs and bird-like respiration, which is a really big deal. We've talked about that a lot before, how when birds breathe in, they fill not only their lungs, but also air sacs. And then when they breathe out, they exhale from the lungs, but then that air sac refills their lung from kind of the back way in. So they're always getting fresh air when they're breathing. So they're kind of breathing in even when they're breathing out, which means that they can get a lot more oxygen into their bloodstream and that can make them more efficient at flying because you need a lot of oxygen to keep those muscles pumping. They also found that several of the vertebrae between the shoulders and the hips were reinforced for extra strength. And they argue that that extra strength evolves specifically to deal with the additional forces from flapping wings because that's basically the part of the body that you might expect to bend a little bit while you're flapping your wings. But if you can have a full rigid torso, that makes a big difference. So when you combine the lighter weight of the skeleton, the rigid thorax, and the fact that it likely had air sacs, we can determine that it probably actively flew, according to them. So that's cool. All right. So Archaeopteryx really would be the first bird then, or at least one of the earliest birds that could fly. Huxley was right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, good old Huxley. Yeah. In other news, in Ogdensburg, New Jersey, the Sterling Hill Mining Museum has new dinosaur tracks on display, bipedal theropods that have three toes on each foot. There was a company, Tilken, that was quarrying for rock in Clifton about 17 years ago. They found the footprints in red sandstone. They were about five feet long, three and a half feet wide, 18 inches thick with five to six prints. And they were on display at Tilken, the developer's office in New York. But then the office moved and there wasn't room for it, so they donated it to the museum. And the tracks probably belong to a carnivorous dinosaur that may have traveled in packs and could move quickly. These tracks are about 200 million years old. Nice. Yeah. Those are very old tracks. Right, and the fact that they're on display in a mining museum, I wouldn't have guessed. Yeah. Next, we talked about this a little while back. There's a new hadrosaur, specifically a lambiosaurine fossil that was found in Alaska's North Slope, and it shows more diversity in the area. It also helps show the link between lambiosaurines in North America and Asia. And this fossil is now in the Perot Museum of Nature and Science in Dallas, Texas. I couldn't figure out, though, if it's on display, though. Maybe it's just in the museum. Might yeah. be on display. It can take a while to make displays, and there's only so much space, too. Dinosaur National Monument has been recognized by the International Dark Sky Association for, quote, having an exceptional quality of natural darkness while efforts on the ground actively contribute to enjoyment and protection of dark skies for future generations, end quote. <laughs> I had no idea there was an International Dark Sky Association, but there's More than 100 places around the world that are designated as an international dark sky park. Five of them are in Colorado. The Dinosaur National Monument's offering a number of opportunities this year to basically explore the darkness. Nice. Yeah, the Dark Sky Association is basically a bunch of astronomers. Because what happens is when you have cities with tons of light pollution, then it lights up the whole atmosphere. Like you've probably seen it around cities, especially from a distance. And then you can't see through the atmosphere, which... Mm can be a bummer if you're trying to look at planets and 
sure. stars and things. But I didn't know there was an association. Somebody's got to push for it. I guess so. <laughs> in Romania, Dino Park Raznov, which is one of the largest dinosaur parks in Southeast Europe, recently doubled in size. They invested in about 600,000 euro. The park has some new dinosaurs, including a seismosaurus. They have a new area for dinosaurs and prehistoric mammals that lived in Romania's Hayteg region. And they also have more than 100 exhibits. It sounds pretty fun for anyone in Romania. In London, there's going to be a 12-week run of Dinosaur World Live at the Troubadour Wembley Park Theater starting July 18th. So the show has dinosaur puppets of all sizes. The story is about Miranda, the daughter of paleontologists who grew up surrounded by dinosaurs on an island off the coast of South America. And she has some dinosaur friends like Triceratops and some sort of feathered bird-like dinosaur that's based on the pictures I saw. And apparently you can buy tickets online already. Could be really popular. In Washington, D.C., Smithsonian's National Zoo is having a dino summer, <laughs> basically from June to August. That's going to feature dino roars and Earth's Dinosaur Zoo Live. That makes sense since the Smithsonian exhibit is about to reopen. That's true. Their fossil hall reopens June 8th, so it's good timing. Dino Roars has a 39-foot-long animatronic T-Rex, as well as replicas of Compsognathus, Dilophosaurus, Parasaurolophus, Stegosaurus, some baby dinosaurs, and then Earth's Dinosaur Zoo Live. It's a puppet show. They have 19 dinosaurs, and I think we've mentioned them a few times because they travel around to a bunch of places. Next, this one I don't know what to make of. It's a new movie that's coming out this summer. It's a home entertainment release. Does that mean like straight to VHS? Is that the Straight to VHS, straight to DVD, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. <laughs> it's called Velocipaster. <laughs> Interesting. Good pun. One write-up that I read about it, it sounds like something the character Stefan from SNL would say, which that character hasn't been on SNL in a while, but the description says, quote, this trailer has everything. Ninjas, battling ninjas while wearing tight whites, kicks to the nuts, a confession booth killing, a girl with a dark past, and a pastor who turns into a sinner-slaying dinosaur. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty good. So the movie is about a priest who goes to China after a family tragedy and then ends up with some ability to turn into a dinosaur. (laughs) As you do. Velociraptor, I guess. And he doesn't like it at first, but then he finds someone to work with him to to fight evil and ninjas. Weird. Very weird. The acting doesn't seem to be the greatest. I'm wondering if it's this uh, decade's Tammy and the T-Rex equivalent. Oh, I hope not. (laughs) We don't need another Tammy and the (laughs) T-Rex. Although it does have some resemblance. (laughs) I guess if anyone ends up seeing it, let us know. Maybe we'll see it. If it goes on Netflix or something, maybe we will. Yeah. (laughs) California Universal Studios has a new ad for Jurassic World The Ride, which is opening this summer. That'll be fun. So the ad shows cast and crew running for safety at Universal Studios away from an angry T-Rex. And Jurassic World The Ride, it's got an original storyline. It takes place in Jurassic World on the day the Indominus Rex escapes. So the ride will include Indominus Rex, Mosasaurus, Guests can also interact with videos while standing in line to learn about the dinosaurs in the ride. That's pretty cool. And then everybody rides a raft. You see the dinosaurs nearby, like Stegosaurus, Parasaurolophus. Then, yeah, things start to go wrong. And Velociraptor and Dilophosaurus come by, wreak some havoc. And then a T-Rex battles a dinosaur, probably Indominus. And then you drop down an 84-foot waterfall to escape. Sounds awfully similar to the previous Jurassic Park ride. Well, it's probably built in the same space, yeah. but then they changed the storyline. 
other than the big drop of the waterfall. Mm -hmm. I think that was the same. Yeah, I think that's the main thing. Oh, and then next to the ride, there's a raptor encounter. You can engage with blue. Huh. Oh, but they had the raptor encounter there too, but it wasn't blue before. <laughs> oh, it was just a regular, an unnamed raptor? I think so. Yeah. There's also going to be a dino play interactive area. Kids can excavate dinosaur fossils. So it sounds like they've expanded it a bit. Cool. And last, the game Fortnite has a dinosaur dancing challenge for anyone who plays that game. The dinosaurs, they're in the desert biome. There's a Tyrannosaurus, Brontosaurus, and Triceratops. And apparently, you just start dancing and then you finish that challenge. <laughs> I guess the hard part is finding them. It's like a dancing adjacent to dinosaurs challenge. <laughs> I think so. I didn't seem like the dinosaurs dance with you, but that'd be cool. That would be cool. This episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now for our dinosaur of the day. Indosuchus was an abelosaur that lived in the late Cretaceous in what is now India, and it was bipedal and carnivorous. It was medium-sized, about 23 feet or 7 meters long, and weighed 1.2 tons. Oof. Yeah. And Indosuchus had a narrow crested skull. It was flattened on the top. The type species is Indosuchus raptorius. It was described in 1933 by Charles Alfred Matley and Frederick von Huhn. The genus name means Indian crocodile. Sukis comes from ancient Greek for the Egyptian crocodile god. And Frederick von Huhn apparently liked to give dinosaurs the name Sukis instead of Saurus because he thought that crocodiles were more closely related to dinosaurs than lizards. Yeah, he's right. Yeah. And the species name means raptorial in Latin. 
So this dinosaur is not to be confused with Indosaurus, a theropod that lived in India and was named the same year, 1933, oh, by the same people, Matley and Hune. There's a whole story here. So Hune named Indosuchus in a monograph in 1933 based on fossils from three partial skulls found by Charles Matley of the Geological Survey of India in 1917 to 1919 in the Lametta group. And in the same monograph, Hune and Matley also described sauropods. Hune described Indosuchus and Indosaurus, and Matley described a stegosaur. So lots of things going on here. And usually monographs are detailed studies of one kind of dinosaur or subject, but it's kind of a specialized subject, so maybe it's a monograph of the area. It was what it was meant to be. Yeah, cool. Yeah. So both Indosuchus and Indosaurus were originally described as carnosaurs close to allosaurids, and it's based on their skull. In 1956, Romer found that Indosaurus and Indosuchus were junior synonyms of the megalosaurid Orthogoniosaurus, but in 1966, he reclassified Orthogoniosaurus to the family Tyrannosauridae. In 1964, Walker found that Orthogoniosaurus was based on one tooth and that it made it indeterminable and separated Indosuchus and Indosaurus into different families. In 1964, he also found that Indosuchus was a Tyrannosaur. Sankar Chatterjee in 1978 confirmed that Indosuchus was a tyrannosaur based on analysis of some of the original material, as well as some referred specimens that Barnum Brown had found back in 1922 near Jabalpur, central India. They found a pair of premaxilla, left maxilla, right denture, two caudal vertebrae, all possibly from one individual. And what happened was Robert Long found those 50 years later at the American Museum of Natural History and then passed it on to Chatterjee. But the discovery of Carnotaurus and other abelosaurids actually helped show that Indosuchus was not a tyrannosaur. And in 1986, Jose Bonaparte said that Indosuchus was an abelosaurid. Chatterjee found that Indosuchus had these continuous dental lamina, which is tissue and tooth development, and it replaced its teeth regularly, even into old age, which is unlike some in crocodilia. Yep, but similar to dinosaurs, that's how they do. Yeah. Indosuchus lived with a large variety of dinosaurs. So there were sauropods, salurosaurs, carnosaurs, and ankylosaurs. And our fun fact of the day is that the full name of Utah raptor is Utah raptor ostromazi. However, it is often called Utah raptor ostromasorum, including on the Natural History Museum of Utah's website. <laughs> so both ways seem like they would honor the two people who it's named after, who are John Ostrom and Chris Mays. So you get Ostrom Mays I or Ostrom Mays Sorum. But according to a recent article by Theagio Costa and David Norman in Bio One, only Ostrom Mays I is correct. As they put it, even if Ostrom Mays Sorum sounds better, ICZN doesn't have any rules requiring a specific format when naming a dinosaur after someone, and the original paper used Ostromazi, and therefore Ostromasorum is just, quote, an arbitrary combination of letters, end quote. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I've always seen Ostromasorum. Me too. That's what I always see with Utah Raptor, but yeah, it's not the correct name. It should be Utah Raptor Ostromazi. I have no idea why it changed. Someone must have thought it sounded like a better Latinization and would have been a better name for it, but... It's only been around since 1993, so it seems like it's pretty quick for a name to get this confused. Happens. Yep. So if you want to sound smart and you use species names when you talk about dinosaurs, 
Make sure you say Utah Raptor Ostromaceae. Well, that just depends on who you're talking to, it sounds like. Yeah. Or you could just be extra pedantic. Yeah. <laughs> and that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any of our episodes. Also, check out our page, patreon.com slash Dino, for some special rewards and to join our community. Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.